up, Achievers? It's me, your host and friend, Billy Power. Welcome to episode 21 of the Urban Achiever Show. The show where we ask questions like, what does it all mean? Why am I here? How did this happen? And maybe, hey, do you own this record? (laughs) The program this week is part one of my conversation with Jeff Becker. Jeff and I go way back to Seattle and the tooth and nail scene of the 90s, where Jeff was fronting bands with interesting names like 90 Pound Wuss, Raft of Dead Monkeys, as well as Suffering and the Hideous Thieves. You may also know Jeff by his stage name, Jeff Suffering. Um, Jeff was a key figure in running an important all-ages music venue called The Paradox in Seattle, where many great shows took place over the years. A cool all-ages place where uh, my band, Blenderhead, uh, played our CD release show for our last record. We recorded a song there, um, and it was also part of the Mars Hill Church, now defunct church, which uh, we'll get to uh, at some point here. Um, Jeff is a husband, a father, an artist, and like so many of my friends, a hustler. Jeff is always out there making something happen. Uh, He's always been one of my favorite people. He's easy to talk to, and I honestly like the way that he looks at things. He has a cool way of looking at life. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you a man worth knowing, a punk, a goth, a shit disturber, and a true believer, Chad Pearson's high school drumline leader, Mr. Jeff Betker. How's it going, man? It's going pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Things are uh, different the last few years, but yeah. <laughs> I'm always uh, um, one cool thing about doing the show is that I'm always discovering things that uh, about people that I've known for a significant amount of a time. Um, and one of the things I discovered was that you went to high school with uh, Chad Pearson, which I did not know at all. Oh yeah, yeah, we did. I was just, I was. <laughs> His section leader and drumline and marching band. <laughs> That's I don't. I have no. I feel like that it's ridiculous <laughs> that this has somehow escaped me, having known you and having you know Chad working there and everything. It's like how did that never come up that I didn't know that? It's crazy. Yeah, I don't know how that never came up. I th- found it really. Sh- he moved, I think, away back to Papua New Guinea where he came from at some point, and then somehow he ended up at Tooth and Nail and. <laughs> You're like, what are you doing here? And there we were again. Yeah, totally. (laughs) There we were again. It was pretty funny. That's crazy. Well, and he showed showed up to Tooth and Nail as Eggly Bagel Face. Right, right. Like, what is this new name you've got? Is that like a Papua New Guinea thing or what? Totally. (laughs) Eggly Bagel Face. Remember that? that? (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) That was the weirdest. (laughs) <laughs> strange times 
Well, he said he claims that uh, his hairdo, his signature hairdo, was uh, he blames that on you and Marty. He says that you guys are the inspiration for the for the single strand hairdo or whatever that was. I don't know. I'm not sure how that worked out, but um, <laughs> oh, you know, there must be a picture of me somewhere. I did used to have my entire head shaved, except for I had four small dreadlocks right in the front that hung down in my uh, face. Yeah. I mean, they were really skinny dreadlocks, and one of them had a crucifix tied in it. Really? Yeah, it was pretty goth. I was I was pretty into the, <laughs> into the skinny puppy. Sure. And the Bauhaus. <laughs> now, where you guys were going to high school, you were like in a rural area of Washington, weren't you? Over across the water there? Yeah, it's called Port Angeles, Washington, and it's a small um, town on the Olympic Peninsula straight across from Victoria, B.C. You could take a ferry there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was predominantly um, rednecks and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so there was, when I was in high school before, I I was in high school right in the middle of my, I think I was a junior, end of my junior year maybe, or beginning, I don't remember when Nirvana got popular, so before that we were basically a bunch of freaks and there's a handful of punk rockers that, you know, and at that time it was like punks, goths, hippies, anybody who was just into music culture, and yeah. didn't listen to mainstream music or country was pretty much lumped together. Yeah. So <laughs> it would it was the strangest thing. <laughs> Anybody that was looking at everybody else and saying no thanks, we're all part of the same group. <laughs> exactly, and we all knew right. each other. There might have been fifty yeah. of us, ranging from the age of you know twenty five to fifteen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now were now were you born out there? Like you grew up there your whole childhood, all the way through high school, or what was the deal? Yes, I was born and raised in Port Angeles, Washington. What was that like? Um, well, it was it's interesting because I uh, I grew up in you know in the church. My parents mm-hmm. became Christians when um, they were pregnant with me, and so they were you know new Christians as well. So they were really excited about their newfound faith and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. we grew up what? in an independent evangelical church. Yep. And um, so later on, you know, I just when I discovered punk rock in middle school Mm -hmm. um it dramatically changed my life i think the first cassette tape somebody gave me was sex pistols never mind the bullocks and the first punk tape which was just weeks after i got my first sort of rock and roll cassette which was a motley crew tape which i thought was badass it was girls 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 that had just come out or something (laughs) but then as soon as somebody gave me they gave me this cassette tape that had um you know never mind the bullocks on one side and Mm -hmm. slayer south of heaven on the other side wow (laughs) you were getting it all there (laughs) yeah but i barely listened to slayer because the sex pistols just had me it was like oh my gosh and um it totally did something in me that i I love the like the song bodies i could never quite wrap my head around was this like a an anti-abortion song from this like (laughs) like that's kind of what it seemed like from my world and and i still i'm still not sure if that's what it is or what like there's some craziness to it that's really ambiguous (laughs) but the beauty of them questioning authority was what i really really loved and to me instantly it felt like jesus like i was like Hmm. this feels like what jesus did and the irony was is that you know, obviously nobody else saw it that way. So. <laughs> um, at least in my area and hometown, yeah. it was not until I got out that people sort of had more radical views about 
Christ, not just um, equating to middle class white America. So, um, but there, that was the thing. Suddenly I got it and suddenly I um, understood that narrative in a different way that I just became instantly almost overnight like, too Christian for the non-Christians and not Christian enough for the Christians. And that has been the trajectory of my life ever <laughs> since, no matter which way I go. Um, yeah, that, that uh, sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what we did with tooth and nail. That's what, where we were at the entire time. So that hit me early on discovering punk rock. And I'm sure anybody who discovered punk rock in the, you know, eighties and stuff that was a believer, had that same sort of thing like all your friends were either you just didn't fit in you just couldn't fit in there was nowhere to mm -hmm. fit in and so they um fortunately some youth group folks were kind and gracious mm -hmm. and generous so i had some friends there and some uh most of the punks were it didn't really matter that i was a christian they just thought it was stupid <laughs> it didn't really matter i still rode a skateboard and i hung out with them so that that's they valued that over my faith because um there wasn't a lot of us to hang out with in the first place. And at least we, you know, listened to the same music and acted like morons. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, having grown up in the church, I always like to, to find out, do you feel like at that point as a kid, you just kind of went along with what was sort of an inherited faith from your parents and your family and that's what you're growing up with? Or do you remember making like a conscious decision, like a walk in the aisle or a camp thing or like a whatever? I made a conscious decision many times. Um, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> I remember being at one camp one year. I mean, this wasn't the first time. I remember so specifically about that. I remember when I was five, like understanding this concept of God being bigger and that God would become what he made and enter mm -hmm. into human history. And I found that scandalous and really interesting. And I was five. And I was like, <laughs> I like that. Um, wow. Sure. Kindergarten. That's really cool. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I found it really interesting. And that was when I... You know, my mom like prayed the sinner's prayer with me and stuff. And so I, at that point, I never doubted that. Um, well, I shouldn't say never doubted. I didn't have a huge faith crisis where I lost that completely. I always have. That's always been a treasure to me. And I'm thankful that um, there's been this thing that just, you know, every once in a while, like through logic and history and some reason and some apologetics, I might go, what if that isn't true? And then mm -hmm. that's about all it goes with me. It's like, I don't I don't really care if it's true or not because the implications of it are beautiful and they point me to a God who's loving and kind and generous that I do care about. And then it just spurs on. But I actually do believe in the historical Jesus. So it's, uh, it's uh, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, so many times. But I remember this camp. I was at this camp and I had this crush on this girl who was my um, friend, Derek's older sister. And, um, and we hung sure. out and she was an artist and um really awesome and she was all into like you know ministry and um depeche mode and like so i mean ministry the band yeah yeah depeche <laughs> mode. <laughs> yeah totally. um, i was gonna cur i was gonna clarify but you you did a list there so <laughs> yeah totally and and she was in a clan of zymox and all this weird like gothy kind of stuff and i i thought she was really really cool and um she was also in a smoking weed so we were at this church camp and we went, went somewhere and got really baked. And then I felt so guilty that I ended up doing the altar call afterwards. And sure, and that'll fix it. And it was all really weird. <laughs> like it was, I mean, it's not, I'm not advocating people um, that are teenagers smoke marijuana, but you know, it's not the most dangerous thing in the world. <laughs> sure. 
whatever. Well, well, it's legal now in a lot of places, so I guess. It doesn't oh yeah, matter. it's legal here. They said it's okay. So they said it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an interesting question because, I mean, what if they legalize other stuff that seems contradictory to uh, what you should be doing? <laughs> What? Which law? Which law are we going to live by, Jeff? The one of the land, or the? Yeah, I, I think sobriety of mind can come in a little bit different forms, and some of that stuff with marijuana does different things to different people. I personally can't do it. I've actually tried it a couple times since it's been legal, and it's both times did not work out well for me. So I'm not interested. <laughs> it was so many years before that. I don't know if it's the stigma of just being um, paranoid because it used to be illegal, or yeah. if it's. Um, I hurt my back, and uh, w- Teresa and I live. We always we've always had housemates, and uh, a housemate has some medical permits. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll I'll try that, see if that helps. It sounds mm-hmm. like a good idea, right? Instead of taking sure, a bunch of, of synthetic, man-made Percocet or whatever the heck they they give you, it sounds like a good idea because I don't do well with um, prescription drugs either. So um, yeah, me either. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try this. And no, I just got paranoid and had to go to sleep. Otherwise I would have been <laughs> miserable. So, uh, and that, that repeated itself the next time I thought, well, maybe it was just the strain. Cause people talk a lot up here about the strain and how oh, different yes. things are. And uh, you have the, the gourmet version. Yeah. Yeah. And I have no idea. Like, I just know that, no, it's not helpful for me. It doesn't. Apparently some people can do that and they don't get all, messed up but no it, it made me messed up so it wasn't good i'm not interested in that or even you know i love beer but i, I don't i don't ever drink enough to get drunk because it's not even fun and i usually just get tired or full and so i'm done like no <laughs> i'm done i had a few <laughs> i uh i have never done a drug and in my life except for drinking and uh about a year ago Maybe, maybe, just maybe I should watch what I'm eating or, you know, try to get things together. So like a year ago, I went vegetarian uh, again. Mm. And after a year of that, like my blood test results were like incredible. And then we went on vacation. I had a few drinks and I felt disgusting. And then I was like, I think I'm done drinking now, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I love I love beer. I love it. But I just is like this just seems kind of like, I'm, uh, you know giving myself five points and then taking away 10 points. Yeah, interested in how you ended up in the drum line did you start playing drums like a young age or like you just kind of picked an instrument because you wanted to do something creative in school what was the deal with that yeah I really wanted to play drums in band in middle school and I get there and all all of it was full so I started by playing trombone um they had a spot really as yeah so for one year I played trombone and then somebody quit 
the um, drum section and band in, in middle school. And so I was able to then transfer over. And so I just kept doing that. And um, in high school, we actually had a percussion class. And so mm-hmm. it was unique. I mean, I, I don't know if it's unique. I only went to high school there. But I, I know that... We- <laughs> <laughs> unique yeah. to your experience. Yeah, definitely. I don't know <laughs> if every high school had a percussion class. I got the impression that many didn't have funding for that kind of stuff. So they just would have a band class and the drummer would play in there. But this was a percussion class designated to percussion. So we would always have the high school band teacher oversaw, but especially during the fall, during marching band season, we would always have a percussion teacher who would come in for an extended period of time, usually from a drug and drum and bugle corps, um, huh? one in Seattle called the Marauders that, um, you know, a drum and bugle corps core is a glorified marching band that enters competitions sort of post high school stuff um Mm -hmm. and they uh he'd come in and he'd teach us all our stuff and our band camp was like intense and pretty serious all that stuff was so um (laughs) being a drummer take it very seriously well yeah totally so it was it was fun learning music and we learned how to read and he'd also you know he taught us like marimba and xylophone and that kind of stuff so we used to enter like solo ensemble competitions with percussion ensembles and stuff and i really enjoyed it and i loved um i played you know bass drum um the quads the four drums that are that are on Uh and then i played snare for the last two years just rudimentary snare drum Mm -hmm. um i never really played drum set in like the jazz band or anything so since i was marching band the foot hand coordination for the rhythmic stuff on a drum set like i can do basics but i can play drums you know at least as good as the white stripe drummer but that's probably about that (laughs) four on the floor actually probably you know the way she bangs that stuff around she's really dang good even though it's so four on the floor and simple but yeah that acdc kind of stuff like really simple i can definitely do um yeah and then in you know high school i met marty he moved up from um California and um he shows up in my art class the first day and he's like you know wearing all black and has like purple pointy Doc Martens on and um <laughs> so I introduced myself right away it was me and this other guy Mickey um who was a year older but we all ended up basically all three of us became really tight this is Marty Martinez who later went on to be a 90 pound was with you yeah exactly so he was in, he played drums too, and he was a Christian, and he was into skateboarding, and he was into punk and goth, and uh-uh. and it was like the most, the it strain- was a lock. Yes. <laughs> it's like someone dropped him out of heaven on into your high school campus. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we kept each other together, uh, um, yeah. sane, I guess you could say, um, during all those adolescent years. <laughs> Yeah. So now um, you're kind of similar to me in that I actually played snare drum as a young guy. Also, I did play piano and some other instruments. How did you and I both just end up singing and playing bass and stuff? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's why I was going to go there. So Marty played since Marty played (laughs) drum set and had a drum set and was actually good at it. Even though I was a section leader in school, he was way better at drum set than me. And we wanted to start a band. Um, So I got a bass somehow. I think I maybe I borrowed a guitar first, but. It was too complicated doing chords. I didn't like it so much. So I ended up getting a bass guitar and I really resonated with it. And because I, I really liked 
space, like in bands like The Cure in particular, The Cure, mm-hmm. like the way Simon Gallup played, just always like did this thing to me. And I was so mm-hmm. into it and it moved me in such a way. So early on, all I would do is basically pick up my bass and try to play Cure songs. Um, <laughs> and this was where can I get a where can I get a chorus pedal? This doesn't sound right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it was. I remember there was some amp that had a built-in chorus on it that I would always love. And then my friend had a flanger pedal, and I'd like plug it into a flanger and chorus. It sounded horrible. <laughs> but yeah, it was. That's kind of like that signature thing, though. Like yeah. like that sound is the chorus on the uh, bass. Yeah, totally. It sounds kind of dope, though. <laughs> It does. At least he yeah. makes it sound that, and some of the Susie and the Banshee stuff sounds pretty cool too. But when I try it, eh, it doesn't sound any good. So we were all into um, that kind of thing and trying to make sort of that kind of music and had this band that was called Systematic Morbidity. And um, nice. Ter- Teresa was in it too. <laughs> well, she was? Yeah, she played keyboards. She went to your high school? Yep, she went. We were high school sweethearts. She actually had a crush on my friend that I was talking about earlier, Mickey, and um, he was a year. So Teresa was a year ahead of us. Mickey was a year ahead of her, and he graduated and moved away. And then um, I used that to my advantage. I said, <laughs> I remember specifically running into her one time, saying, "Hey, Mickey's coming into town, and we're gonna hang out. We should all get together and hang out." And I did, and that was sort of the night that changed everything. So wow, it was it was look at you. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he helped me out yeah 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 so um yeah she was in it and it was really interesting we were totally like influenced by einstein neubotten like we had lots of percussion since me and marty were both in it that we made out of garbage cans and all sorts of yeah, stuff sure. banging on stuff yeah it was pretty funny so it was kind of this like industrial goth punk thing and um systematic morbidity is that what you said yeah and then we changed the name to just systematic later but it was pretty fun did you guys ever you never recorded anything or anything like on a boom box or anything yeah somewhere i don't know if i have any of that stuff left over but um somewhere <laughs> i know there's some videos we used to do some performance art stuff too it was pretty it was pretty embarrassing um man you got off to an early start on all this stuff jeff dang you weren't messing around <laughs> no it was pretty pretentious and serious at that time and then later Marty got out of, um, we kind of split ways a little bit for a couple years there, and he got way into, um, he started wearing baggy pants instead of tight pants, and uh-huh. um, we were both still in skateboarding or stuff, but and stuff like that, but I think I got, I was being into sort of goth more, and he was more into Beastie Boys and Henry Rollins, and, and he got more into punk stuff, and we always liked punk, but I liked classic, like I, I listened to to the the crap out of the dead kennedys um Mm -hmm. love it still to this day subhumans uk is one of my favorites like uh subhumans dead kennedys and then um i don't know like i liked minor threat a ton yeah were you ever into any of the la punk stuff like x and adolescence and vandals and all that kind of stuff or not as much oh not as much but i loved i loved christian death that first christian (laughs) death record that had you know rick agnew of adolescence on it (laughs) Sure. That was like one of my favorite albums for a long time, which is ridiculous. (laughs) I listened to that stuff because I liked it, but it wasn't my my fave. I didn't even like, (laughs) I wasn't even that into Black Flag younger. I only liked the early Black Flag stuff. And then it wasn't in Keith Morris and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't till later, um, probably in the middle of 90 Pound Wuss, that I started actually really getting the. the Henry Rollins later era Black Flag, and I, I still to this day listen to that stuff all the time. Yeah, like damaged man, that's the gold standard right there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I 
I don't know, man. I started liking this stuff when he had long hair and wore short shorts. Oh, yeah. You Getting know? out there. Yeah. Getting crazy. <laughs> yeah, my war, slip it in, um, loose nut, all that, that stuff in my head. Yeah, so Marty and John Hamelberger and Matt Nelson started playing music together in 90 Pound Wuss. And me and Marty and John were doing something else. I think we were calling it hacking egg egg or something at the time. Hacking egg egg? Yeah, like it, it's, a, it's some Bible story where this guy egg egg gets hacked in half. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> so they started they started doing this thing and they wanted to just be at that time. They were they actually wanted to be signed to Tooth and Nail and were way into mm. MXPX and stuff going on. And so they wanted to start this punk band. So I said, sure. Well, actually, they didn't even ask me at first. I kind of forced my way in there. Actually, I, that's, how, that's how it happened. I said, dude, we're already doing something. Why you got to do something else? And then I, I, I probably used manipulation and guilt in some sort of way to allow them to let me try out to sing in their new band. And somehow it just worked. And so they didn't they didn't have a singer. They were just playing. Yeah, they were just playing. Yeah. So then I was singing and. In my opinion, you know, since most of this narrative I'm telling you, the majority, even though I listened to punk rock, was um, way into goth and stuff. I mean, we were listening to everything, right? Like, we listened to Fugazi sure. and, like, everything, all that stuff. But some of I was just way more into Bauhaus and whatever, <laughs> that stuff, which also has a punk element to it. So, um, of course. But the, the faves of the punk rock school were, you know, oh, Circle Jerks. That was the California band that I loved. I did love the go. Circle Jerks. Keith Morris, yeah. When I was in skateboarding, I always would skateboard at competitions to the Circle Jerks. So, um, wait, you skateboarded in competitions? I did. I used to. I I won a skateboard competition in Victoria, BC, and then some locally on the Olympic Peninsula and stuff. Really? Yeah. Like street skating? Street, or what? street skating, yes. Unbelievable. I was way into street skating. It was fun. Jeff Becker, a man for all seasons, everybody. Guy's doing it all. It's a regular underground renaissance, man. <laughs> as long as it's associated with alternative underground stuff in the early 90s pre-grunge, I probably had something to do with it. Skateboarding, check. Goth, check. <laughs> Punk, check. Yep. <laughs> Getting yep. high at Bible camp, check. You know, whatever. <laughs> totally, exactly. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So... Where was I? Somehow I inserted myself into 90 Pound Wuss anyways, and we didn't have a name. And then it was joked around about Marty being super skinny and, you know, the 90 Pound Weakling. Are you a 90 Pound Weakling thing from old magazines? Mad magazines, maybe, or something? It was this advertisement yeah. to take beef yourself up, whatever. <laughs> Weight training program. Yeah, basically that kind of stuff. So um, we thought it was funny, 90 Pound Wuss. And um, yeah, they actually wanted to be a part of the stuff that was happening on tooth and nail and things. And, uh, I thought that's cool. Great. And they were already pretty interested in, in, I mean, Marty was pretty much listening to the beastie boys and punk rock. And so, yeah. um, and I already loved punk rock and my ideas in it were like, Oh great. This is awesome. I can just be candid and straightforward and yell at people. That sounds fun. And so <laughs> my ideas were simply like, and influences were like, the candid sarcasm of Jello Biafra and the, mm -hmm. the, the power of singing about what you believed in, like minor threat. And, yep. um, yeah, that, that's, those were the two big, huge things for vocals and style of lyrics and performance on that first 90 pound wuss record was literally influenced by those, those two musicians. But as a believer, I sang about that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> 
That's so funny. I have, you know, I'm sure you know this as you get older. Uh, some some memories get fuzzier than others. Uh, but for whatever reason, I can just still see myself at Robert Lang with you guys when you're doing that record, doing the background vocals and stuff like that, just like yelling like the different little parts and all that. Yeah. It's like so weird that I have such a vivid memory of that. <laughs> I can remember it too. Yeah, it's totally fun. Yeah, I remember all that. Like that was because that was my first experience in a studio, in a real studio. And uh it's a good that's a good first start let me tell you i know it's unbelievable actually like that's a <laughs> that place is like off the hook <laughs> i know like how did that happen like we're just this band from port angeles and then suddenly we're doing that and it was what was really cool is that getting back into you know being in a punk band suddenly i found myself um listening to a lot more of that music because particularly matt um Nelson was way into like Screeching Weasel and like all the uh, the lookout stuff at mm-hmm. the time and um I'm glad that I I got that sort of interruption from, you know, what to me now is much more boring. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, I still listen to some of those goth bands or whatever, but not like in the way that I did when I was younger, except for Swans, right? Nick Cave. I listen to that stuff a bunch. But um anyway, like I didn't really, I didn't wasn't paying attention to stuff that was going on around the country, right? And you know, and this was after high school and grunge had gotten popular and all that stuff. But I wasn't really paying attention to Green Day or anything like that. And then suddenly I was, because here I am yeah. around all these people who were, and um, I liked a lot of that stuff. Particularly, I really did like Screeching Screeching Weasel and the Queers, and um, it reminded me of Seven Seconds, like all that sort of pop punk. I was like. Yeah, this is sort of like bands that must be into like the Ramones and Seven Seconds is pretty much like what I thought of the pop punk stuff coming out. I wasn't a big Green Day fan at all. It was it was still really strange to me how popular it got when it did, so So I was exposed to that, and then instantly from that, right? If you're paying attention to Lookout, you suddenly find yourself listening to Filth and Blats and like all these like crazy crust <laughs> punk stuff, and that's a veil. Yeah, what? 
Yeah, but a lot of those um, more crusty, like all black wearing dreadlocked patches kind of hippie punks like i started resonating with that more and i had never even heard crass until um those times which is funny because i heard of them right because i was into dead kennedys and all the american hardcore stuff from the 80s so um Mm -hmm. and even the canadian stuff you know doa or whatever like that stuff was great um yeah yeah so i started hearing crass and that really changed something it had this there was this powerful like value system and ethic around that mm-hmm. band in particular that had to do with steward the environment and like farming and like all these things that yeah, just yeah. seemed totally oxymoronical for like punk rock and it resonated with my christianity going they care about something that that isn't just like f you man it was like something more <laughs> constructive it not was not nihilism but yeah. uh yeah Direct it, action. And yet they're... <laughs> Food, not bombs, bro. Totally. And, but the imagery in particular of Crass was so, like, stark and just bleak. And yet um, it had something beautiful about it. I mean, there's that cross with the snake wrapped around it in a circle. Like, that freaking amazing icon. And mm-hmm. um, I just started getting into that side of punk rock a lot more during 90 Pound Wuss things as everybody else is getting into pop punk. Not everybody else necessarily in the band, but on around, you know, Tooth and Nail and the label. And then what was mm-hmm. awesome is meeting, um, you know, starting to spend time with you and Matt and and everybody's like listening to this like weird sort of progressive, um, complicated math rock kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. Post hardcore. Emotional. And... Yeah. That kind of thing going on. And um, that started really influencing me, too, because I thought that stuff was um, awesome, particularly Slint. Um, mm-hmm. and Rodan and particularly those two bands like every time touch and go it, stuff yeah 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 obviously shellac and like obviously everything from DC that was coming out in the mm-hmm. mid late 90s was pretty damn amazing so um, yeah all that stuff those are a lot of the reasons why 90 pound was changed so dramatically as as well as the people dropping out of playing with us you know like mm-hmm. ha- Hamelberger or Matt Nelson quits we go through a series of bass players that were all MXPX friends, um, Giles O'Neill and Dale Yob, and then um, who were both in the Cooties. Yep. And then... Um, Still event- around. Yeah, totally. I haven't talked to them forever, but... Um, <laughs> They're over there. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Yob. So those guys played with us for a season, but mm-hmm. as people were going and then... Um, now, had you, moved, had you moved over to Seattle at that point? Oh, yeah, I'd moved what? over by then. Definitely. Yep. I moved over after the first 90 pound Wuss record came out. I was in Port Orchard and traveling back and forth for rehearsals and then um, mm-hmm. trying to get to Seattle. And then I eventually moved to Seattle during that first record. And John Hamelberger quit in the middle of where Meager die. He had some kids and um, we didn't have enough time before the studio. We, we had it all booked and everything and we only had half the songs done. So we needed to cram. And so basically, um, <laughs> I was calling like crazy Spalding because I had met him at a party that we had at the Hiawatha house and, Mm -hmm. um, which is where we lived in the U district. And we used to have shows there all the time. And, um, his band and list played. And I knew that one of his dreams was to record at Robert Lang. And, um, we had that booked for where meager die. And I liked his style. He was way in at the time he was way interested in sunny day real estate and, his band and list kind of had that sound going on and we were pretty in- interested in that at the time and and still punk and still um getting more into hardcore particularly like San Diego style screamo 
and mm-hmm. Frodus was. I was listening to Frodus on their first record before I knew the guys, and they were on tooth and nail. Like I was way yeah, into yeah. that thing. So um, <laughs> here we are, like making music that we like and stuff that we're listening to, which was different than the first album. And um, John was a perfect fit. But the the weird thing was is we didn't have enough time to teach him the old songs. So basically, Hamelberger came in the studio, played half the songs, and then Spalding played half the new songs <laughs> that we had just written. So. Yeah, um, yeah. That was a strange studio experience, and it was so. Um, it was all recorded really live, and in that studio, I think we could have done something different. But anyways, it was fun. So that's yeah. all that matters, and it sounds what what it sounds like. It was pretty cool. But um, yeah. So then later, you know, we didn't have a bass player, and so Matt was actually Matt Johnson was playing bass for us live. You did a mm-hmm. couple times. I did. I know you did at the Tooth and Nail Fest, and I think you did a couple times up here as well, didn't you? I'm pretty I did. sure. I feel like I did, but I what the those what those shows were, I'm, I, they've it's deleted. <laughs> I wonder if it, it might be at the old Firehouse Teen Center in Redmond, maybe, and maybe yeah, yeah Velvet be. Elvis or something. But yeah, you, you you played with us a few times, and and then you know, like like uh, in your podcast about Matt, he's definitely a good songwriter and able to play other things, and so he. Yeah, he had always wanted to play guitar in a band, but um, we had a bass opportunity, and since we were all close friends, like he thought he'd try, and so um, he did fine. It was great, particularly live. Yeah, I felt like that was something that nobody really knew about Matt because Matt's obviously known as being this like a machine of a drummer, but I don't think I don't know that people really realized that he was always coming in with his own songs and coming up with little riffs and you know really significantly contributing to songwriting and lyrics and all these different things. Yeah. I in some ways wish we would have taken some advantage of that on that last record. But by then it was so, um, we just wanted to write the record as a three piece. So he was playing Mm -hmm. live with us and we wrote the record as a three piece, me and John and Marty. And so that was the first time that like I had written a couple songs on where meager die and brought some stuff to it that they liked, but, um, like blank stare. And, uh, I can't remember all the other ones. I'd have to look at the record sleeve, but, um, I wrote a few musically. And then, um, on that one, it was pretty much me and John bringing stuff to the table and then collaborating to finish it. And then Mm -hmm. Marty, like adding his two cents and, and coming up with the drums and, uh, yeah. So that was, um, drastic changes from the first to the last album and the one in the middle like is is its own thing too so um i think it it retains the um punk rock qualities and there's some similarity through all of them like you can find at least like one song from the first record or two that sort of trail in and make sense yeah yeah but um you you did a great job of changing without alienating you sort of tried to progress without just becoming a complete different thing that is unrecognizable from where you started so that, good job man thanks man <laughs> hey you guys did the way, same thing way, way to thread the needle way to keep moving forward there but keeping uh, certain things and getting rid of other things that's uh, that's a good job that's what i i, I like i mean cer- certain you know i like certain bands that just stay the same you know you can't beat the ramones like and they've, yeah. they even progress they're they're, sure. they're a lot different from their first record to you know pet cemetery right like that's that's right a, it's a different thing but um bad religion making the same record since 1980 or whatever yeah totally <laughs> they get better production though each time they do yeah <laughs> they, they have that more figured out and no effects the same thing like you can right but you know they have those opus moments right like the like right. punk and drublick like I, I that's still an amazing record like yeah i like that album still um well anyway the, the point being that there's just a lot of change for various reasons and i, I do think that we 
it was us being us and it wasn't yeah. us trying to stay consistent it was us doing art and creating what it wasn't a marketing ploy to be a band that sounded like x y and z it was more like this is what we're into right now and this is where we're going and um mm-hmm. let's just play what we want that was the whole entire thing the whole entire time in that band even the beginning was we all decided oh yeah we haven't actually done this like i've been doing these other things and i like this music so let's do this music and yeah so in the beginning it was sort of more fabricated and then as time went on it, it just became yeah, let's just do what we want to do. And so then suddenly you start seeing at the end, there's this weird post-punk and goth and weird stuff going on that I was totally always influenced by and was always there in the beginning. And yet there's a more robustness because also the current state at the time of punk rock, mm-hmm. particularly the side of people who resonated with bands like Crass and sort of that more political anarcho-punk stuff, mm-hmm. I was totally into at that time. And I think, um, and hardcore and... What a weird thing that, that like that genre, it's almost a curse word. Emo is what it is today. Like, <laughs> what is that? How did that it become? Means, it means something completely different that I do not understand at all. <laughs> I know. How, how did that become glam metal? Like what I, the I world? I don't even want to think about it. I know it makes I did, me I, sad. <laughs> I loved, I loved that you guys incorporated all the weird keyboards. It really reminded me of uh, stuff that no one knows. You're gonna appreciate this, but probably no one else. But um, it really reminded me of all those early like decline era, like punk band, LA punk bands, where it was like Catholic Discipline and Alice Bag mm-hmm. Band and all that kind of stuff, where they were. It was very punk, but just had like the weird synths and like things in it. Not you know, not in the goth sense, but like it's just straight up punk. And then oh, we have this like our buddy plays keyboard or something. Totally. Like, I don't know. I like that about you guys that you had that element that was T S O L. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. True Sounds of Liberty. They had some great records. I love them. Yeah, they're they're good. That's when I started seeing some of those like liking more on of those uh LA punk bands was definitely in ninety pound West I started appreciating some of them, particularly T S O L was one that stood out. I got into them. They were like a band that was definitely influenced by the damned. Mm-hmm. You could tell. Oh no question. Yeah. yeah. There, there was some cool stuff going on. The faux uh, faux British vocals that became like a thing there for an era of the LA punk bands. Or it's like, wait a minute, these guys aren't British. <laughs> yeah. It's right. what's weird to me is that when we were on Tooth and Nail and doing that whole thing, there was always this assumption that we knew Christian music and Christian yeah. rock. And most of us never really listened to that stuff extensively. I mean, obviously I'm familiar with like I love music, so and I yeah. love my I love Jesus, so of course I knew like LSU and um mm-hmm. you know the one the one band that was Scattered Few, probably. The Scattered Few for me was like the one band. Like that was the band that like I talk to, I still talk to Alan sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I really liked that band a lot. That was sort of the, you know, that was like this weird time. They were around when Jane's Addiction was around, and that was like the weird time right before grunge got popular. The things that were like mm-hmm. alternative that were growing were like this weird sort of metal goth punk hybrid thing, which was Jane's Addiction <laughs> and the Scattered Few were like right there. They were on par, man. They, they were great. And then there's like a, yeah. you know, a Nine Inch Nails like. It seemed like that was what alternative music was going to break. And then suddenly, like, yeah. uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit just came out like a train wreck, man. It just yeah. obliterated pop culture. It was awesome. <laughs> They're like, is that a wah-wah pedal in there on that Jane's Addiction song? Yeah, totally. 
Here yeah. we go. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. Like, what? what? Yeah. I have a distinct memory of when they started playing. Uh, I remember Marco Collins. So I think they have like a documentary coming out about the guy. I wonder if they'll talk about this. But I can remember my wife, at the, well, girlfriend at the time, now ex-wife. I remember driving back from uh, Michelle's apartment to my apartment in Ballard. And it was late at night. And Marco was playing uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit over and over and over again in secession. He just kept playing it. The, my whole drive home, he like played it. It's like third time, fourth time, fifth time. He just kept playing it over and over. He's like, this is incredible. Like, what is this? Like, and he would just play. I was like, this is so crazy. Like, how is this even happening right now? I don't remember that ever happening ever or hearing anything like that on the radio, you know, before or since or it's just crazy. I was listening to um, the end that night. I remember Were that. You? Do you I remember totally that? remember when that song came out and he played it over and over and over again. <laughs> He did. Remember it was that. like late at night, like on a yep. Sunday night or something or whatever. And, and he just like that was his show. He just played that song over and over and over. Again. It was it was it was powerful. Like, I couldn't believe what had happened. I was still in I was still in high school at the time. And it it it, it, uh, it, it changed everything. Like suddenly we went from being ostracized and having to defend ourselves from rednecks and jocks all the time to like being like the cool kids younger people just they just don't get it like it was you couldn't there was a point where in american culture you just couldn't be into anything Mm -hmm. that wasn't acceptable and no you couldn't you would get made fun of you would get ostracized and discriminated against beat up sometimes um yeah it wasn't fun getting you know people's like uh 40 ounce 7-eleven drinks thrown at us from their pickup truck as they drove by and then this time all those same people you know bought flannels and uh, got nirvana pins on their bags and we're like hey hold on a second <laughs> you're, not, you're not allowed to co-opt our culture <laughs> that's what's happening right now yep in fact uh um that was not lost on uh kurt cobain who wrote that song that has the line you know they're the ones they like all my pretty songs and they like to sing along but they don't know what it means yep where where he himself was kind of struggling with that that whole the whole notion of that that like you know now i have these fans and and you know yeah <laughs> these totally. are the kids that would have kicked my ass when i was in high school and what the hell's happening <laughs> yeah he's like a definitely prophetic in many terms about popular culture and the directions it's heading and the i mean he's a yeah like that whole story, I can't wait to see the um, movie. Mm-hmm. 
man. Because um, it, it just like looking back and not even being super into it at the time, like uh, that particular track of grunge or whatever, like mm-hmm. that's like my story that I identify with culturally. Like that's the thing. He is the poster person for my generation <laughs> and that change <laughs> that was going on. And there's no yeah. ifs, ands, or buts, and he accurately represents it. Like he died, you know, he yeah. tragically like couldn't, it was overwhelming. And that's how it felt, you know, like even now looking mm-hmm. around and seeing, you know, like we, we mentioned emo, like it being co-opted by a bunch of like eighties glam. Yeah. It feels like everything that we stood for that had value has been commercialized. And, um, and you know, in some ways, like I, I, I was a part of that in some ways, like I, I definitely <laughs> like, I wanted to be a rock star for sure. Everybody did in those times and, and Nirvana made it viable that you probably could be, even though. We all know, and you mentioned this to me before. You said it this way, I think. Like it's like going with a hundred bucks to Vegas to win a million. It's true. That's like that's, that's a like ver- that's a that's a variation on it. I think the way I used to not nicely put it to my bands, who I got the feeling that they were starting to turn the corner into money away from art. Yeah, I think what I'd usually say to them is, "Here, do us all a favor. Just take all your gear, sell all of it, take the money, and go to Vegas for a weekend. Have a good time." you know play some bets and whatever and save all of us a lot of time and heartache (laughs) yeah totally there was a sense of idealism around art and um commerce which doesn't make any sense because those two like just they they should not like they're not the same thing they're totally different worlds and they're They're totally created by um like people who make art and actually make art it doesn't matter if you starve or not you're gonna do your thing yep like because you have to you have to and right. um, just like those who, in some ways, I always, I always have this thing that goes back to um, my faith and just like, just like those who really believe in the fairy tale that is God incarnate as Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to have an apologetic. We don't have to like study our ass off to win arguments because it just is. It's so experiential as much as it touches the world that we see every day and, and our intellect. And so some yes. of us do go those, those ways and we have some arguments and there's nothing wrong with that. Certain people are wired, but we don't have to like, that's not what drives us. That's not like there's something more that's touched. That's so deeply resonated that it's just part of who we are. I love that. Yeah. I kind of landed on that lately. I love the art and the poetry of the story. I, I threw out presuppositional apologetics a long, 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 long time ago. It's never moved me. It's never interested me. And I think that's because I, I um, have always understood and resonated with post-modernity and now mm-hmm. post-post-modernity, whatever. Like, <laughs> wherever we are, I value this thing of being present where we are with the people that we are. And I think mm-hmm. earlier there was certain things in me that were inclined that way and have oftentimes gotten snuffed out for different reasons, various desires, various competing things around. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can look back at those tooth and nail days and know how narcissistic I acted and know um, how much of an ass I was in the name of like trying to make a name for myself. And it was a crushing weight of anxiety, you know, like this, I need to be this and yet I mm-hmm. did it in such a way that like all the music that I've made has been with a sense of artistic integrity and staying true to the community of people I was around mm-hmm. and and the things that we were interested in and listening to and about and, and my 
and myself personally. And yet, even in the midst of that, there was this arrogance so often that thought somehow what I'm making matters so much and is so big that um, <laughs> somebody ought to like appreciate it. And it led to, um, towards the end of like suffering in the hideous thieves, it led to like neglect of my family um, and the things that mattered. It led to like some broken relationships and some strange stuff that I've repaired. But there was this narcissistic arrogance and ego-driven kind of um, self-protection mm-hmm. that came out of that. Um, I mean, I think that's why I resonate a lot with um, Kurt Cobain being the figurehead, you know, like there. The, I couldn't take that pressure either. And um, <laughs> I just had to quit. Are you, Jeff, are you saying that uh, that Pretty Girls Makes Graves song uh, is about you where, where she says, uh, oh, no, oh, no, here comes the girl with the ice cream cone who didn't get a scoop as big as mine? <laughs> Maybe. I do know Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> she just changed the sex to uh, protect, protect your... Uh, your <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know. I always, I always love that song. I just wanted a chance to, to say. Yeah, that. that stuff's good. Yeah, it's interesting looking back because I, I do, I do think I'm very fond of a lot of those times. And you know, like it, there was a hi- long hiatus of not making any music, and I'm glad that I'm doing it a little bit now. But um, just at a different life stage, and things are different. Yeah. And now it's awesome. It feels healthy again. Like uh. Like when I started doing all that stuff, it was healthy out of passion and out of desire and out of want. And then, you know, you go and you play these shows and there's like thousands of people like praising you yeah. and stuff. And you think, oh, we've made it. And then you look at your till box and you're like, oh, <laughs> we haven't made it. <laughs> and like there's that yeah. weird discrepancy thinking like that there's more because certainly somebody must be buying your albums. And, and then you start sure. to get, get bitter at the weird like nuances of the music industry and maybe contractual arrangements and stuff like that which totally are the reason why you had a thousand people chanting your name right there in the first place it's crazy well well, you you know jeff oddly that's the same problem that's happened in in uh, recent church history that i'm sure you're familiar with where uh somehow popularity and uh, kudos has uh become equated with uh yeah i'm doing the right thing man everybody Everybody thinks I'm awesome, so I must be. I can't be making any mistakes or doing anything wrong, right? Yes, totally. It makes me want to go to uh, <laughs> back to the Olympic Peninsula and start a compound <laughs> and get now, away we'll, from. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll get there, everything. and I'm sorry that we have to go there today, but there's no way we're not going to talk about that stuff. But um, before Good. we do, um, and this is totally at your option, but since you mentioned his name, I I feel like that maybe you should say a brief word about John. I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about Spalding at all, if that's just too heavy for you to get into. No, no I'm pretty, uh, the things that I value are in life in general are authenticity, candor and vulnerability. So yeah, I can just hang it all out there and I don't ever have nice. to even look good. So, um, <laughs> yeah, John, um, it was really hard towards the, the, when he got diagnosed with cancer and he, it was many years that he went through that and, he wrote a record. Um, I don't know if you heard it. It's called. It goes by the name of Loveland. Is what he mm-hmm. somebody released it, and um, he was really, really drawn towards the end there, towards um, his Catholic faith. And I was in um, trenched in evangelical Christianity, and I was so entrenched in church culture at Mars Hill, where I, I uh, the last few years was a, a pastor there, but before just. There's a lot of reasons about that. That's a long story. But when John was um, passing and his lifestyle was a lot different and he lived right up the street from us and I didn't 
I regret not seeing him as much as I ought to. I had this value system that was at the time that was about um, the church and it really valued church community in such a way that I think was unhealthy that um, I got busy in the work of quote the work of God, which was bullshit that I missed out on a lot of life. And so I have some serious regrets and, and causes some sorrow around John and that's my fault. It's not, Mm -hmm. I can't blame the church I was at or anything. It was, it was, it was my fault, but the times that we did get to be together, I got to go to mass with him for a prayer for healing. Um, that was really powerful to me. He made Mm -hmm. us dinner quite a few times and watched, watched our girls. And we were right over, we were over at his house the day before he passed. And, um, man, like it was just heavy seeing, um, seeing that, I mean, he was, he was like a brother to me in every way mm-hmm. that a brother is where you love and, and you can't stand at the same time. Um, he was so kind and loving and generous. And yet he had this streak of, um, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to get my way that would manifest <laughs> itself. And I think that's why some, I really enjoyed the music that we made together and, and listening to it now and raft and, and that last 90 pound was record. It, it has that audacity and that thing of a bunch of people with a bunch of egos clashing and beating each other to pull something out. <laughs> it that, makes for good art, man. There's no way around that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad that he got to make that Loveland record with, you know, he made it with a bunch of guys that he was hanging out with there at the end, you know, um, some folks from these arms are snakes and minus the bear and, and, uh, blood brothers. And those were people that were, um, we used to play shows within all their bands and those are the man kudos to him. I went the church route and he maintained those relationships from the music community here in Seattle in such a beautiful way that um, they were all present and loved him and they helped him put out that record and they recorded it for him for free and, and or minimum rates or somebody paid for it because he didn't have any money. And um, mm-hmm. there was part of me that really wanted like at the time, like really wanted to make music with John again. And I was so encouraged that he didn't even ask and he just did that he'd talk to me about it and we'd talk about it and he would always say man i i I like making music with you i'm gonna do this record on my own and it was awesome to um see that come together and it was literally the people that those people were there in his house with him as he's dying Mm -hmm. and it was always like a party when you'd show up there like everybody was it was sad and yet they made it because he cared so much he would make sure that everybody was enjoying themselves and he really wanted to be around people and and the people that he chose to be around like i'm connected to now forever just because of that experience and we have something that um when we see each other and run into each other it doesn't matter that i it doesn't seem to matter at least that i came from this um cultic mega church weird (laughs) thing Jeff Becker, everybody. That's Mr. Suffering to you, kid. What did he say there? Cultic, megachurch, weird thing at the end? What could Jeff possibly be referring to there? Stay tuned, Achievers. It's all coming up in the next episode. I never cease to be amazed at the level my friends are willing to go on this show to open themselves up and to share not just the good parts of their lives and the ones where they look good, but also the painful, not pretty ones. 
ones where they're exposed. It's incredible, really. Thank you, Jeff, uh, for sharing your story, part of your story today. Go out today and hug a friend. Tell somebody you love them. Be present. Take the time. Listen. Don't be so busy that you miss out on those important moments in life. Live with authenticity, candor, and vulnerability. Do it for Jeff. Make Jeff proud. Thank you. The music on today's show included ASD, or Apathetic Selfish Destruction, Legalism, and New Age from the 90 Pound Wuss self-titled record, as well as The Dawning of This Night Divine and Backwards Thinking from Where Meager Die of Self-Interest, all on Tooth and Nail. The Urban Achiever theme song was written and performed by Ethan Luck and Dan Spencer. As always, you can follow The Urban Achiever Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UrbanAchieverPC. You can email me anytime at Billy at UrbanAchieverShow.com. Um, I appreciate your emails uh, and your encouraging notes. It really does mean the world to me. The Urban Achiever Show is 100% listener supported. If you like what we're doing and you want to give something, please go to patreon.com slash urbanachiever and give a buck or whatever. Uh, you can also purchase show t-shirts and coffee mugs at urbanachiever.gobigwin.com. Hey, thanks again for listening, for sharing the show. Um, you're awesome. Until next time, keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. portable recorder is going yep it's going all right awesome like a zoom or something yeah it's a zoom oh i think it'll work fine i tested it yesterday awesome well thanks for uh jumping through the hoops uh to do that yeah no problem yeah it's not a i i didn't get a 58 but it'll work it's hey, better okay. than nothing yeah i appreciate it i appreciate you doing anything at all <laughs> Other, Thanks. Other, other than agreeing to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>